Uh, second chapter. Second chapter. Uh, Whole time. You already thought ahead. Yeah. All right. So, as uh, we we went over last week in the first week of this, um, Paul was writing to the Galatians um, a little later in his ministry. He'd been around for a little while already at this point going. It wasn't towards the end of his life, but it was later of the, of the stuff that he had written. Uh, there was a, he, he wrote to them to confront them. It is a confrontational letter. Uh, as Paul is wont to do, he, he does you know, let them know that he's praying for them. He tells them, the good things they're doing because they did convert very quickly and really take to the gospel very quickly. Um, a lot of that because of the the fact that they were Jew. There's a lot of Greek Jews living in, in Galatia at the time because from the diaspora where they went up. Um, but the issue they had was is that there was arguments over whether or not, and this is from the very beginning all the way through Acts, you constantly see him talking about the Judaizers, the Judaizers. And this was people that, remembering in, in the first century, there were a lot of additional rules added to the Jewish religion. There was 613 commandments in all given by God throughout the whole Torah. The rabbis and the additional priests managed to come up with 613 more. And everything from, you know, like, uh, we didn't go over this last week, but we went over in previous things that, like everything from washing cups, like how they were supposed to wash a cup. If you picked up a fruit with one hand, you weren't allowed to set it down and pick it up with the other hand unless you washed it because the two hands aren't allowed to crawl. All kinds of just stuff. There was washings, that ritual washings constantly. You had to say these prayers and wash and you know, wash your hands, then you'd have to take with your clean right hand and wash your left forearm and say a prayer, then take your clean left hand and wash your your right forearm, then you'd have to wash both hands again, then wash your elbow, then it would just, it would take 15 to 25 minutes just to wash your hands to eat. It was, they were just really, that's, that's the reason for Christ saying that the law was made for man, not man for the law. It was not made for, to put a noose around people's neck. It was made to help people live. To help people live a better life, live the best life they can. But the Judaizers wanted, they liked the, the conformity. They really felt, and people today, you'll feel people that, even though they'll jump from church to church, but you'll see sometimes people will go from maybe non-denominational or Baptist, and they go to like a Catholic church or a, or something that is like you know a, a uh, more along the lines of an evangelical church, you know, a congregational church that has very, a lot of ordinances and a lot of rules and stuff. Because a lot of people feel comfort in the rules. That in general we do as people, even as children, even when they rebel against the rules, the rules as long as they know where the line is, they feel comfort. That's why, honestly, a lot of times parents that refuse to put solid guidelines for their kids, the kids end up 
really not liking the parents very much. They want to be, the parents want to be their friend, yet they're not, their kids don't want to be the parents' friend. Because there's not a level of respect. Because they feel comfort. The child is looking for comfort. They're looking, a lot of times when they act out, any type of, they're willing to get you know, spanked or whatever to get any sort of affection and notice about, no being noticed. So the child just wants to know that you care. Well, we as adults don't change very much. We still want to know that you care. We still want to, and a lot of times in religion, we find ourselves going into places where we have to follow rules. And a lot of times it's more about like the prayers and the meditations because it allows us to comfort ourselves. It allows you to, to live your life. And when you get those moments where of, of confusion or, or quietness, you can, it gives you something to fall back on, a prayer or a, a, uh, something to think about. Or like, you know, the Catholic Church, they have the, the mysteries of the, of the gospel, the mystery of salvation, the mystery of Mary, the mystery of atonement, all these mysteries. And there are these sayings that go along with each one of them. Well, you could comfort yourself with that when you say the prayers and you say that it's a comforting thing. Well, the Judaizers felt the same way. They felt like, well, you're telling us we're all the, the Jews that were converting to Christianity felt the same way. They were going, you're telling us there's all this freedom. What, do we just go out and go crazy now? We can do anything? There's got to be limits to it. And so they wanted to put themselves back under the law of sorts. The problem is, as soon as you go back to deciding you're going to follow this law but not follow that law, you're going to, you immediately come into confrontation. Because one person wants to follow certain ones and another person thinks those are too restrictive and they got their own set of laws and either you're going to follow them all or you're going to follow none or else you're going to cause a lot of strife. And Paul, raised as, a, as Jewish, became a Pharisee. He knew all the laws. He knew all the stuff that was going on. But he was now called to the Gentiles. He was even raised in a Gentile area so he understood the mindset of the Gentiles to where the Gentiles didn't feel comfortable with all the rules and all the laws. Well, the Judaizers were going around telling the Gentiles they had to become Jewish first. They had to go and do, do the, you know, uh, every, every aspect of it, whether it from circumcision to, you know, every one of the rules, essentially all the confirmation stuff that you go to at 13, they want to do all of that to become Jewish first. And then they're, they're Christian. And when a lot of Apollos and Paul and Barnabas would tell them no, they did kind of a childish thing and said, well, you're not the boss of us. You don't have authority over us. We answer to the real apostles, not you guys. And so Paul starts out, Galatians, very confrontational. I mean, that's why we went over last week, and we'll go one more time, when the first verse of the first chapter it says, Paul, an apostle, normally he says a servant of Jesus Christ. His opening is, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Immediately starts out confrontational, letting him know, that, listen, I'm telling you this because I have a God-ordained position of authority in the church to correct and rebuke. And less about the fact that he, whether he felt he was an apostle or not, but more about the fact that as a shepherd, as somebody who goes and worked with the church in its infancy, he has a sense of duty to the church to correct the church for what it's doing wrong. 
So he goes through, you know, make, gives some issues and tells him about, you know, remember that, you know, I, he tells him his conversion and goes through that. Well, two starts again and picks up with him still kind of telling the conversion and how and what he had done and where he had gone through with his conversion. Um, but it goes along the lines of defending the gospel. So we're going to start and we're going to read through uh, the first like 10, chap- 10 verses and then we're going to go back and through and unpack some of what he's talking about. So starting in chapter 2, verse 1, he says that, this is right after his conversion, he just talked about that. So he's talking about his conversion. Then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that, go- that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run and had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that, because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Jesus Christ, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave a place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who who seemed to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it makes no matter to me, God accepts no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But counterwise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought or worked effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, and that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. Only they would, would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. So, you see there, he starts to talk about how that he didn't go immediately up to Jerusalem, except for that one time. After he went in the first chapter, he talks about how that right after his conversion, he went to, went to Arabia, spent some time there, communing with God and with Christ and learning his ways, and then went back up to Damascus and started his ministry, started preaching, started teaching. After a period of time, he went. He did go to Jerusalem, and he met only with Peter and James, the Lord's brother, and John, and just for 15 days, and then he went back out on his mission. He then went for 14 years total. So from the time of his conversion until the time he comes back, it was 14 years of setting up churches, preaching, and doing things like that. The only reason why he came back was because they were spreading rumors that he was teaching incorrectly. He was not sharing the gospel correctly, and that he was teaching the Gentiles errors. So essentially that he went back by revelation from God, that he needed to go back because the church of Jerusalem was scared of what he was teaching. And at that point, we actually have, that's Acts 15, is, is where that takes place, and that's known as the Jerusalem Council. 
um, Jerusalem Council. So we, if we want to flip back to Acts 15, we can go back there really fast. It's just a, not a ton of pages. But. So... I'm going to start in two just because the five is actually kind of finishing up the pre the five fifteen one is finishing up the previous chapter. <clears throat> so starting in two, it says, When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and reputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through uh, Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion to the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. And there rose up certain of the sect of Pharisees, which believed, saying, that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses." And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there was much, had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brother, you know how to, that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God, but put, to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither out of our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they... When Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had worked among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And, this, and to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, after this, I will return, and I will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. It's Amos 9.11 is what he's... That the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who does all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from the strangled and from the blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, bearing reed in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleased at the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was surnamed Barasabbas, and Silas, chief 
men among the brethren. So, we see that in here there was this council, and it says they were disputing on every matter, basically. They were, everyone was having a dispute. These guys are saying this, those guys are saying that, until they said, well, let's give the floor to Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas said what they were doing. They told him the gospel that they were preaching. They told him the way they were teaching. And all the guys who had all the disputes immediately, and of course Peter and James being the preeminent of the church at that time, were immediately said, yep, that's it. Led by the Spirit, they said, that's it. What they're teaching is right. That the reason for, essentially what they're saying, put, Moses put, I put on a burden, a yoke on the people that, mo, that we ourselves can't bear. Because if you could bear it, why do we need Christ? If you can be perfect, why do you need God? Why do you need a, a Savior? Why do you need it all? Well, because you can't be. You really can't be perfect. And you're going to mess up. And you're going to have mistakes. But so because of that, we have a Savior who came down and fulfilled the law perfectly. He fulfilled it all of his days. He kept it perfect. And he himself became the Passover lamb, even going so much as to even fulfilling where he starts with the unleavened bread, passes it around, even gave the drink to everyone, but he himself drank not at all from the cup until after he, he had gone through all the trial and on the cross they gave him vinegar to drink and he said it is finished, meaning the Seder was finished. And the reason for that is if you go back into Leviticus and you read and you go back into Deuteronomy and you read where they talk about these, that was the finishing act. You first were to start Seder. The Seder starts. You have a series of questions and answers. You have the children. Then you, you sacrifice the lamb. The lamb goes everything. But the final act was to drink a, a cup of, of wine, of bitter wine, to remind you of, your, of, of, of everything that had happened at that point and of the future. And that was the end of the Seder. So... Christ kept the Seder open until he was on the cross so that he could end it with the shedding of the blood of the perfect Lamb of God. So he fulfilled the law perfectly. He did it all the way it was. He kept it and he fulfilled it. Just as he said that there's, he, didn't come to, he didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. To show for the, to be the first time ever anybody was able to perfectly fulfill the law. Every part. So, and that's, that's what they get into in the sense that if you could fulfill the law, you wouldn't have to do the guilt offerings. You wouldn't have to do If you just lived perfectly, you wouldn't need all the other offerings. You wouldn't need all the stuff. So they were able to fulfill it through Christ and were able to take on him. Now, he goes ahead and, and they're, they're arguing that, well, to be the, for the Gentiles to get saved, they need to become Jewish first. Well, that's what they immediately went through and they said, the way Paul's doing is fine. You know, because he said, if you go back to Galatians, he says that it's that that Titus didn't get didn't he didn't see any purpose of it. And he didn't even get Paul didn't even baptize Titus either. Just as another, because people will point out like the reason why we baptize, like certain churches baptize infants, is they'll say, well, the baptism replaces circumcision, which is how you know you're in in God's family or whatnot. He didn't even do that. 
Titus was never, was, was never even baptized by Paul, the one who did that. And that's, again, that's a point to make known that baptism, what does it do? It washes the skin for now, but it doesn't do anything to the soul. As, as Paul talks all through the first five chapters of Romans, you can be circumcised in the flesh, but that has nothing to do with your heart. It has nothing to do with the inside man. It profits the flesh. So men around you will know, oh yeah, yeah, he's circumcised, he's one of us. That has nothing to do with your soul. Nothing to do with your eternal soul. Um, I do want to point out, though, that uh, Acts, if you go one more page, probably Acts 16, verse 3. This is, it continues on through the end, and they talk about different things and where they're going to send them to the churches and stuff. Um, but then when, they, when, when Paul and them went back out through, we see here, starting in 3, it says, um, him, Paul, would have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. Well, what is this talking about? So we go through and we look up how that, uh, previous to this, you have Timothy, which in mine, because it's, it's the King James, it says Timotheus. But starting in verse 1, it says, Then they came to Derbe and to Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were in Lystra and Iconium. Him, Paul would have to go forth and took the circumcision. Now, the, and he says, because the Jews were in those quarters, they would all know that his father was a Greek. Four says, and as they went through the cities, they delivered them decrees for them to keep that were ordained by the apostles and elders. That was taking care of, decrees was to take care of children and widows and stuff. Because um, again, that's what he says at the end of 10, where he says the only thing they charge us with is to tell people to take care of children and widows, which is what I was doing already. But if you notice, he did actually circumcise Timothy, who was not circumcised. So, and I believe that's put in there, because, well, for two friends, the reason why he did it was because they wouldn't let Timothy in the synagogues. They wouldn't let him go in and preach. He had to keep staying outside even the cities of the, where the, the Greek Jews were, because they wouldn't let him in, because he was dirty, because he was uncircumcised. Paul wanted him to continue with him, wanted to bring some along, so Paul ended up circumcising Timothy so that the Jews would let him in, because everybody in the area knew that, Jew, that Timothy wasn't circumcised. There was a rumor going around. This is one of these scenarios where I tell people that, because we have a huge backlash against the law, against the Torah, against of churches, there are many of Baptist churches will just rail against it. Oh, keeping the law. The one thing about it is, as I tell people, if you're going to keep the law, honestly, that's fine because it's a good way to live. It would be a very healthy lifestyle to live. It's a very pure and clean lifestyle to live. Keeping, keeping the Mosaic law, that's what it was for. It was given to people who are living in the desert. Who He's telling them, remember, you're going to go use the restroom. Go outside the camp, dig a hole a couple feet deep. You know, don't let waste lay around in your plant. If you cut yourself, if you get 
diseased animal or something, go wash in a running river so that the river water carries the disease away. And wash. And, and he's telling them these things. If you touch a dead animal, go sit on the outskirts of the, of, until, the ne- until that evening to see if you start getting sick. That way you don't get other people sick. It's a very clean lifestyle. It's a clean way to live. So I believe, and I believe this was included in the Bible for that purpose, to say, if somebody wants to follow the traditions and customs, it's not going to hurt you. If anything, it may help you live a better life, a more holy life. It's not, gonna, it's not this thing where it's, oh, you, you know, you should look. Some people frown upon people who want to. It's a good way to live. It's a very healthy way to live. It'll help you in your life. The thing is, it's a lifestyle rather than the saving. The saving comes from the grace of God. That's how it happens. So again, if you want to circumcise your children or not, you have it both ways. Titus said, no, not going to do it. Timothy said, I want to go in the temples and preach, so do it. You have both. The, the, the tent of God is big enough for everybody. It was to the Jew and to the Greek. But the Greeks didn't have to become Jews first. The Greeks, God meets you where you're See, that's the greatest thing about, this is actually, I love to tell this story because people, people will argue with me about stuff like that. About, okay, you know, God was doing more things in the world than what's written in the Bible. He was doing all kinds of things we don't, he's not, he didn't tell us about. Why? I don't, think he cared. I don't think he thought it was important enough to tell us. He gave us the most important stuff. The other stuff, it happens. How do you know stuff like this? Well, if you go back to the third chapter of Exodus, and we're not going to go there. Because <laughs> it's long, it's a long chapter. But I'm going to summarize it for you. Moses was on the run after killing the Egyptian, and they found out about it. He goes into Arabia, and he's he's out in the desert. He thinks he's going to die out there because he's out in the bay. He meets a person. The first time they mention him, they say his name is Ruach, which means Ruel, which means friend of God, a friend of God. In the next chapter, they say his his full name was was actually. Um, uh, Oh, come on, Jethro. He was a priest of God. Not a priest of Baal. Not a priest of some Arabian. He was a priest of God. And yet he was living. He was not a Jewish person. He was living in Arabia during the time when the Hebrews were still in bondage in Egypt. How's that possible? It's the same way that when Abraham was going around trying to fight a war with the, with the kings of Sodom, when he went through, he met Melchizedek, who was the priest king of Salem. Melchizedek means my God is righteous, or my king is, is God. So, how was Melchizedek a priest of the living God? God's working on people outside of what he tells us here. He was working on the heart of Jethro. He was working on the heart of the man who was, would be known as Melchizedek. He met them where they were. These were people who were in other cultures. He came to them and talked to them in a way they could understand where they were, and they became converts to follow and trust in God. And in, like, even the Hebrew of the of the Old Testament, 
in there. It even says it's not just that he was a follower of God, a priest of, of God. He was a priest not even of Elohim, which is God. He was a priest of Yahweh, which is the living God. So God does things. He meets people where they are. He doesn't ask you to change before he can save you. He doesn't ask you to clean up before he can save you. He meets you where you're at. And that's what Paul's getting at with everything he's talking. He's going, listen, when we go out here, these people have never heard of a Torah. These people have never heard of this. We can't, you know, it seems second nature to the people in Jerusalem because they were raised in it. When you turn 13, you have to be able to quote at least one chapter of the Torah by memory. They're raised in this sort of thing. So it seems second nature to them. Outside, they've never even heard of it. So God is meeting these people as, as where they are. And as dirty, unkept people. And meeting them. And so the, the, the salvation, the regeneration comes in an instant. The cleaning up and the, the, and, and the full process takes time. So you're saved in an instant. Uh, this is, uh, uh, Wesley, uh, John Wesley would say, saved in an instant, regenerated over time meaning made into the new man over a period of time. So, clearly, again, with the fact that Titus wasn't, there's no connection between the two things. The, the living of the law is a lifestyle choice that would define you as being a follower of God because you believe in his laws, you do, the, you do what you do, but it has nothing to do with salvation. It's simply a good concept to follow, that will, will make you live the best life you can. Um, interesting, and again, the best life you can, some people can't live a very good life for various reasons. They got a bad start in life, bad childhood, number of reasons, drug addicts may never be able to fully experience the life other people could, but they can still be saved, regenerated, and they have a future in heaven. So they still have that. Um, I'm going to have us jump to Deuteronomy 10 for a second, just so we can kind of uh, look at this. Only in the sense that I want to show again that a lot of people in uh, 6 of, of that, where it said that he talks about how that, you know, but these men who came in, they seemed good, but, you know, whatsoever they were, whether they were saved or not, it doesn't matter to me. God doesn't make any, that's not a respecter of persons. So, in Deuteronomy 10 and 17, verse 17, it says right in there, it's talking about this, it's talking about circumcision, it's talking about all things, because if we go a little before that, it's talking about to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which are a command these day for that, it's commanded for thy good. Starting 13, keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which are commanded thee this day for thy good. Behold, the heaven and the heavens of heavens is the Lord's, thy God. For the earth also, with all therein is, that's his, tis. Only the Lord has had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and who chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as is this day. And he's telling them, listen, God, God loves the people. It's God's prerogative to do what he does. Circumcision... Therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. 
For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God and mighty and a terrible and terrible, which he regardeth no person nor taketh reward. Meaning God isn't concerned about who you are. God doesn't, he doesn't say, congratulate himself for getting, oh, I got a thousand people saved today. Good going me. Nope. Doesn't care. Doesn't care. And again, even this, he just got them putting down the statutes. He's talking, keep the statutes, keep the laws. That's a great thing to do. Some of the statutes and laws are temporary because if you notice a lot of them, when he's saying, he'll say, while you are sojourning in the land, you must. Well, that means as soon as they went into Canaan and started doing Canaan, they didn't have to do those things. Most of those are the laws, again, like the campsite stuff, like taking your waste outside and various things. But there were certain ones were for a period of time to help the people live while they were in this encampment for 40 years waiting. And then, likewise, it says in there about circumcision. Circumcise your hearts, meaning the flesh is the flesh. If your heart isn't, it means nothing. It means nothing. Uh, so that's, I just wanted to point that, that out that, you know, in the Old Testament, it goes all the way back, right after giving the laws and stuff, God immediately tells it, but God's not a respecter of persons. He really doesn't care who you are on this earth. He cares about your heart. He doesn't care if you're some high and mighty person who can, has all the, the, the lambs and, and bullets and bulls in the world to sacrifice, or if you're poor and you got nothing and you have to, which is another thing. Again, great with God is, he'll say, for a sin offering, you got to go, you got to take a bull with you to the, okay. And if you can't afford a bull, bring a, do- bring a dove. And if you can't find a dove, take two ombers of barley and give them to the priest. He just keeps reducing it down. <laughs> so it's like, he's going, listen, because God is, he cares about the heart. You're going, I would follow God, but I don't have any money. God's going, you don't need money then. Do what you can do. Do, what, do the best you can. So it's not so much about following the law, it's that your heart is in the right place while you're doing it. The same exact, it's the same principle of the, of the, uh, the widow with the two mites. She gave two mites, which is the equivalent of like one, like some one-twentieth of a penny. She gave more than the people who were dropping off pounds of gold because she gave everything. Because she believed God would take care of her no matter what. So... Again, this is that thing. God is not a respecter of persons. He really, he's concerned with your heart. He's not concerned with what your body and does or where you are in life. So starting at 11, we're going to continue and read out the end of the, this chapter. Uh, I'm going to cut it short a little bit in the sense that I kind of went crazy on the first part and expanded quite a bit, but as I am tend to do. But So starting in Galatians 2, verse 11 says, and we actually read uh, a part, I think we read in 15, that after the evening they, they talked, Peter kind of went with them to Antioch to see what was going on. Because P- Paul was using Antioch kind of as his base point, um, even though the church was based technically in Jerusalem. So 11 says, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. So there you go again. Here's a guy who saw, walked with Jesus for three years. When he came to Antioch, Paul confronted him and said, you're wrong. You're wrong. Face to face. Didn't do it in front of a crowd. Didn't, just, didn't, do, didn't you know, 
do anything to hurt, you know, like in, to, 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 to dishonor him, but said, you're wrong. You're wrong. So, starting at 12, it says, For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And of other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas, who also was carried away with their dissimulation. Now this is referring to, if you go back um, in Acts, not you like the you know nine, ten, eleven. You'll see Peter has this vision. Peter's talking about not wanting to go out to the Gentiles. See, Peter is on the top of a house. He sees a vision of a sheet come down. It has all kinds of animals on it. God says, "Call nothing I say is clean, dirty." Now, some people like to point that out to be for the dietary laws. That has nothing. That just the animals have nothing to do with that. He's referring to people. The animals are referring to people. He's saying these people you're saying are clean because they're uncircumcised. They're clean because they're not Jews. Don't call what I'm calling clean, dirty. How dare you call the people I'm, I want saved dirty? Don't do that. So Peter changed. Immediately after that, he went and ate with a centurion you know, in, a, in a Greek. He, he even said, well, I don't know if I should. He does that. And then one, a chapter later in Acts, when James is like, I don't think we should be hanging around with Gentiles again. Peter's like, all right, and stops. Doing the very thing he just got a vision from God for. That's the one thing. That's one thing I use as a reason to believe the Bible, because if the Bible isn't real, the person who wrote that is an amazing psychological evaluator. Because Peter is a very flawed person. <laughs> Peter is—he will stand there face to face with God and say, "You're the Christ. You're the one. I'll follow you to the death." And six hours later, he denies him three times. And <laughs> he's sitting there, and Peter—he's going, "Peter, you're going to do great things for me. You're going to be one of the greatest of me. You're going to be one of these amazing, but you're going to die on a cross." For, for me, because you're going to have so much care and belief in me, you're going to die on a cross. You're going to be crucified for me. And Peter said, what? He looked over his shoulder at John and said, well, what about him? <laughs> he's sitting here looking at the resurrected Savior. And he's like, what about him? Peter is a flawed individual, very flawed individual. And yet he was, he was the fun, he was what held the church together. Because you had James, who was a very Jewish, very law-oriented person, and you had Paul, who was very not, who was going all the other ways, and Peter was able to hold, he was the glue that held that together. But unfortunately, you see here, there were times he got wishy-washy, and he moved closer to James from pressure, due to the pressure of, of, probably because he was around James all the time, and James seems like he was a very big figure of person. You know, like his, his personality was very, probably overbearing as it probably needed to be to be an apostle to the Jews, who were very resistant to the gospel in that time. But so uh, we're going to continue in Galatians in 14. That's chapter 2, 14. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter, and the truth of the gospel is to the Jews first and the Greeks, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners 
of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ a minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. This is the most straightforward that Paul gets with that. That, and this is this is a this passage here is used in a lot of ways by a lot of people, and. It's, again, this is the same reason to argue against people who say a Catholic, which I love, I have many Catholic friends who I believe are saved because they get the gospel. But a lot of Catholics don't understand the gospel because they say you're saved by being baptized in the church, then you're receiving grace by doing the sacraments, the communion. The problem with that is they don't just believe you're taken away for an and, and uh, juice, they're saying that they are crucifying Christ all over again every time they break the cracker. Well, if right there, then what, then what did Christ die for? If he's doing it over again, if he has to die over and over again, then the one time wasn't enough. And if the one time was enough, then why put yourself back under the bondage of the law if he died once to cover it all? See, by the law... The law doesn't, the law from the beginning was not meant to justify people before God. Faith in God, even from the beginning, is what justifies you. Jethro could not have been justified by works of the law. Jethro was justified because he believed. It was belief. The works of the law are simply there to point out your sin. That's what they're for. They tell you these are the sinful habits you have. It is because of the law that we know we're sinful. Now, we have, of course, many places written, Second uh, Romans 2, it refers to the fact that by the law, we're not saved, but without the law, how do you know what's right and wrong? It points you to the fact that you need to work on yourself, that you need to deal with this. So, again, the key, just like I said, believe somebody who keeps the law, you're not, you're probably going to be living a much better life than I live. I mean, that's, God bless you for it. But it's not, that's not what saves. You can't return under something. It, again, if Christ did it once, he did it for all. Ends of story. Amen. So, and again, we're going to go and we'll go, we'll go just in, we got a little time here. Uh, go to Romans 3. Romans 3. 
Romans is my favorite, one of my favorite books in the New Testament. I'm an Old Testament person. I love the Old Testament. I read it all the time. But uh, Romans is my favorite because it presents the gospel and it also presents us in our worst light, people in our worst light. Because the, the, basically the first 12 chapters of Romans, you can follow it. It's just like, essentially, it's the 12-step program for drug addicts. First, you have to understand that you have a problem. You have to come to a realization that your life is not controllable by you. Then you got to accept that there's an ultimate power outside of you that could help. It's the second chapter. Then, so the first chapter, he explains evil. Sinfulness, transgression, fornication, all these different things. Second chapter, he refers to the old man, the man of flesh, realizing that, and he talks about how the law, having the law is good because it points out that you are sinful and that you need saving. So that's what points you to God. The law points you to God. The fact that we have a law, we have the Torah, means that we, you can, that's how you can know there's God. If we didn't feel resentment and, and, and we didn't feel guilty for doing things, that would be a perfect judge. That'd be a perfect explanation as to there being no God. But the fact that we can feel right and wrong means that we know there's a God. It's written on our hearts by God. That, that, that we know. He's in, he imprinted us with himself. That's that little spark of, of, that he says in our, his image. That's what he's talking about. The fact that we were made with the ability to know right and wrong. So, then the third one is you have to be willing to ask God. You have to be willing to ask, make amends with God and ask him to take over this life that is uncontrollable by us. If we're relying on ourselves, we're, we're banking on failure. But you have to be willing to go. So again, the 12 steps, read it. Read Romans 1 through 12. Same thing, basically. It follows right suit. But so, in the third chapter, um, we're going to go with uh, 20, I guess. That's the 20th verse. So Romans 3.20. Therefore, Okay, well, actually, we'll go back to 19, just because. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Again, it's because the law exists that we know we're guilty. 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is Jesus Christ. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, take his place, through the faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? Is it, it is excluded by what law? Of works? No but by the law of faith. You can't boast in it. 
Even, even if you can keep the law, it's still not boasting because that doesn't get you saved. So your salvation is of no boasting to us. Nothing we did. Because we can't. Even if you could keep the law, the law is just pointing to the fact that you need a Savior. It's pointing out the sin. Paul talks again at length all through the book of Romans that he loves the law because without it, he never would have realized how bad of a person he really was. It's, it, it's a benefit to us. If you want to go read Deuteronomy and look through it, it will benefit you because it will point, it's a mirror to you. It will point out who you really are and how gracious and righteous God really is. But no, no flesh will be saved. It's always been faith. Faith in Yahweh. Faith in God. In the Old Testament, poet Moses said, who do I say sent me? Tell him, I am sent you. I am, I mean, I exist because I exist. I exist of myself. Christ said at least seven times that we know of in the New Testament when they said, who are you? I am. He is. I am. He said before the foundation of the world, I am. Not I was. Not I always have been. He said before the foundation of the world, I am. Meaning he's the same God. So faith in the I am of the Old Testament, faith in the I am of the New Testament, one God, is what saves you. Even Again, even, and we could sit here and go, I could go all through. There's a, there's a, there was a, a man who was, worked for the priest of Ramon in, in the Chaldeans who preached. He comes to Elijah, says, you know, I got this leprosy. Can you do anything about it? Elijah says, yeah, sure. Go. First, Elijah wouldn't talk to him. He was like, go wash in the, th- go wash in the water and get, get out of here. I won't talk to you. Finally, he convinces him. Hey, can I talk to you? Okay, sure. So he goes, rinses in the water, comes back, says, hey, I'm clean. What, how'd you do that? Elijah goes, God, God did that. I didn't do that. And he goes, well, tell me about this God. So he tells him about God. And then he says, okay, here's the deal. I work as an assistant to the priest of Ramon. Every day, he's very old. I have to literally carry him into the, into the priest room so he can kneel down in front of Ramon and pray. I believe in Yahweh now. I believe in the living God now. But this is still my job. Can I have something to remind me or just so God knows I'm not really, I'm not the one worshiping Ramon, it's this man. And Elijah said, you don't need it. God knows. Now, for his own sake, he, that wasn't good enough. He says, no, 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 I had to, can I take dirt? Can I just take a couple bags of dirt? And Elijah's like, well, I see no harm in that. So he loaded up as much dirt as his mule could carry and took it back with him to the, to the Chaldean capital and continued to, to, to help the priest of Ramon do his job. So we, they don't tell us what he's going to do with that dirt. I don't know what he put in his pockets and walk in. I don't know what he did with that dirt. But they sprinkle it, who knows. But his job was even to help somebody worship a pagan god. But Elijah, and then he wanted something to prove to God that his heart was in the right place. And Elijah said, no, you don't have to. God knows. God knows your heart's in the right place. So all through the Old Testament, people were being saved. People were being, why? Belief in God. It was belief in him. Belief now. Never changed. Following the law is great because it reminds you of who God is and his greatness. But is it necessary? No, it's not. And especially because 
some people where they're at now could never get to a point of full, full following because they, they're just, again, whatever it's for, where they're at, God meets them where they're at. Christ meets them where they're at. He lives in them where they're at. He doesn't ask them to change so they can be saved. He saves them, and then they want to change because of him. And so that is Galatians 2. I could have gone a little deeper, ran out of time. But remember, the works of the law are a great sign to remind I read all the time. I have a whole series on the Ten Commandments. I don't, not a single one of them has passed away. They're all still in existence. All ten. But, it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. Live a good life. Live the best life you can. That's one of the things Joel Osteen got right. Live the best life you can. Now, you might not have a private jet. You might not even be able to afford your own house. But live the best life you can. And if, if, if following the law is what helps you, then do it. But it's not going to mean anything when we stand before our maker. God's not a respecter of persons. The person in the gutter with a heroin needle sticking out of his arm is going to get the same repentance and salvation as the person who followed the law perfectly. So, with that, I will pray, and we are dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time. I thank you for the people that have come. Thank you for our guests uh, that hopefully they... They at least got something to chew on, and if they want to call me out, <laughs> that uh, I'm more than likely to hear it. Um, God, just thank you for your book. Thank you for your Bible that's consistent from beginning to end, that we can know that there's power in your name and your saving grace, and that you meet us right where we are. You don't expect us to change and come to you because we can't. You come to us. Thank you for all of that. Thank you for, again, this book that just every time you read it, there's something new new to help you gauge your life and live your life. We ask for the best for everybody here. They go throughout the week. They finish this week strong, and hopefully we'll come back into your house and be, be ready to go and face another week. We ask all these things in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.